Breaking the cycle to step forward. Authentic conversations from lived experience and a professional perspective in overcoming abuse with Chris Tuck and Beverly Ann. Hi everyone and welcome to Breaking the Cycle to Step Forward podcast with myself Chris Tuck and hello I'm Beverly Ann and we have two wonderful guests today but we're starting with the lovely Dr. 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 <laughs> Ellie Hanson so welcome Ellie. Thank you it's a joy to be here again for my, my second um, appearance on this fantastic podcast so it's it's lovely to be back thank you for inviting me again oh, welcome and we are going to be joined hopefully tech allowing <laughs> we're going to be joined by Kath from the family secret so today's podcast subject is sibling sexual abuse and it's quite good timing really because there was an article that came out literally two days ago that says that children are now the biggest perpetrators of sexual abuse against other children. And I'm very hesitant to use that word perpetrator and we'll go through that um, in a little bit. But it says police data shows 52% of alleged offenders in England and Wales are minors, a situation exacerbated by sex. I can't get my teeth out today accessibility of violent porn so we know Ellie you're the expert in this kind of um, field and this sector what does that say to you and how does that lead into your research that you've done? Thank you Chris I mean sadly this, these stats are not shocking um, you know sadly this is what many of us have been expecting um, and predicting you know, we saw the the surge in accessibility to online porn, um, you know, how, how it's just it's so accessible for young people. We, we know the content of that um, and the very harmful messages that it's promoting about sex and how and how children and indeed adults should approach sex. Um, we have the research showing that pornography does increase sexual abuse from one young person to another um so you know in a way what did we expect kind of one plus one is two mm -hmm. um, we you know we take we've been so slow to regulate online porn um and every year that has gone by where the government hasn't regulated has been thousands upon thousands more children exposed to it um and for and it's not saying that every child that's exposed to it is going to go on to harm but those that may be dealing with other vulnerabilities um, may already be developing kind of, say, an identity of hostile masculinity, for example. Um, you know, it, it's just fueling and interacting with those vulnerabilities to push some young people into that behaviour. Um, so sadly, this is exactly what we predict. I, I think in that same article, it was something like, this kind of abuse child to child has increased fourfold right you know so it's kind of a wake-up call in, in a nutshell it's a wake-up call and and you know we do have the online safety act now so action is going to be taken but really the message is this needs to happen this needs to happen yesterday <laughs> you know we need mm. to do it straight away 
Can I ask some questions to just clarify a little bit about what we mean about online pornography? Because again, for our listeners, there's different interpretations because this is not a new thing. So are we including in that gaming? Um, I'm not including gaming unless there is pornography within the game. Um, so, you know, that, that is true that within some games there would be um, very sexual content. I mean, in a nutshell, how I would define porn is kind of overt graphic um, sexual acts being shown. Um, within that, you then can be seeing some very violent stuff. Um, something like, I might get this stat not quite right, but it's something like 40% of online mainstream porn, a, a content and big piece of research content analysis showed um, contains some kind of violence towards women. Um, and linking back to our theme of sibling sexual abuse, um, sadly now um, in inverted commas, incest porn is mainstream and has really ramped up in content. Um, and that includes an awful lot of that is depicting um, brother-sister relationships and basically giving off the impression that that is sex, that, that, that the kind of taboo is sexy and should be transgressed. Yeah, thank you, know, you I, for clarifying. I, ha I have a quote from a porn actor who, who's saying she's, she's constantly asked to, to act out these scenes um, and she's now saying no to it because she's really concerned of a young boy watching it and thinking he's going to act it out with his sister. And, you know, she's absolutely right. But sadly, despite her decision, there's still an awful lot of it out there. And it's also the overt messaging. Sorry, Chris. Sorry. Um, it's the overt messaging that comes through as well. When we see that um, in music, let's be frank with some of the, the videos and some of the wording. So whilst it's not classified as pornography, pornography is subliminal isn't it i think that is such a good point that i'm all for us naming the problem with porn but like you're saying let's not forget that other content that is still pushing objectification of girls and women um and these really unhealthy messages about sex and sex involving for example do dominance and submission rather than equality um and that it's sexy to kind of coerce somebody or pressure someone into sex these kind of really toxic messages that are so conducive to abuse but it's the normal normalization of this porn i'm talking about adult porn now that has led to a culture of where it's just acceptable to so many people they don't even bat an eyelid to it. It's just like, oh, well, you know, it's almost like um, a coming of age thing for young boys to be able to, to access and watch porn. And, and what damage could that potentially or even possibly cause? There is a lot of um, ignorance in inverted commerce about how this is damaging and how it has changed our culture and how most of us will unless you're a victim of sexual abuse, there's sort of like, well, you know, it's it's just porn, isn't it? It's, that's, that's what it is. It's just sex. So what's that got to do with childhood sexual abuse? Where's the link? 
I, I could not agree with you more that there is this really kind of laissez-faire attitude and oh it's just you know it's it's someone's pri private matter um behind closed doors boys will be boys it's just fantasy or, we hear all of that stuff and if you do take it seriously well you're a bit old-fashioned and you're a prude rather than actually let's really look at what's going on which is that this isn't just sex and nudity mm -hmm. it is certain sexual scripts it's a certain model of how sex should be which involves seeing the other person often kind of men seeing women as objects mm -hmm. um often violent typically impersonal um and often involving inequality, coercion, manipulation. So it's really teaching boys and indeed adults um, really unhealthy sexual scripts and sexualizing abuse, actually. It is sexualizing abuse and it's promoting an abusive sexuality rather than um, giving young people the space to forge a sexuality that is rooted in respecting others, that chemistry, yeah. that you know that is the sexuality that is healthy and that is going to protect against abusive behavior now i have started to read through your report however i've also haven't got to the end and i you know it is something you can only read in chunks to a certain extent one of the things that stood out for me is when we talk about sexual abuse onto a child and we talk about that um familial sexual abuse is largest proportion we hear a lot of resistance from you know the general public outside of the survivor area and when we talk about um parental such as fathers on on their children not saying that mothers don't but it's a much smaller um percentage i was very shocked to see that sibling on sibling is higher than father to daughter or father to son Yes. Yes, you, you, I, I agree with you. I found writing this report, and just for the listeners, this is a report that I have written for the NSPCC on sibling sexual abuse, which will be out hopefully um, later on this year. Um, and that is looking at the kind of, you know, what sibling sexual abuse often involves, what contributes to it, and what we kind of need to be doing about it and how we can support people following it. Um, and yes, Beverly, I think you know, doing this research for it, I found a lot of surprises myself. Um, and like you say, it's interesting, isn't it? Because we come, we're trying to sh um, often convey to people that parent to child abuse is more common than people think. But then you come across, wow, sibling sexual abuse is potentially even more shadowed. Um, that that is really not spoken about. And the idea that it's even more frequent than parent to child, I think will come as a surprise to many people. But yes, the mo it seems from research that the most common form of sexual abuse within the family is brother to older brother to younger sister. Yeah. And why is that, Ellie? What has your research shown you, if anything? Um, you know, it's hard to completely say, but some, some of the factors involved are that you know we tend to society tends to look at sibling relationships as kind of inherently harmless mm -hmm. um you know and that there might be these highs and lows but it's all fine um and they can spend an awful lot of time together in each other's rooms yeah. and no one's going to ask any questions about that 
So there is just something about opportunity with siblings that may not be as present with other family relationships. Um, you know, a father has got to kind of set up a situation where he is alone with his child um, and his partner isn't going to ask any questions. I mean, I'm hugely generalising here. Yeah. Um, but, you know, brother and sister could be spending hours and no one's even going to think about that. Um, so that was one of the things that really came across in the research that abusive siblings have much more opportunity potentially than, than others. Um, and then that's reflected in what we see that sibling sexual abuse on average, and again, we're talking a lot of averages here, but can be more long lasting and more severe, uh, more intrusive on average than other forms of sexual abuse, than many other forms. Wow. Mm. wow. So it's it's more often involving, for example, penetration than father to child. How would, and again, I'm generalizing, but how would the brother know how to abuse and what, it might sound like a stupid question, but how would they know about how to abuse and what to do and why would it even enter their heads with their sister? Where are they getting it from? What 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 are the how are they learning it? What how is it happening? Where's it coming from? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And again, we've got a bit of research on that. We need much more. But what's coming up is we talked about pornography, obviously. That could yeah. be one major factor. Um, also, what's coming up is actually if in the wider family there is, and this may not be intentional but mm -hmm. not the best of boundaries around nudity and things like that. And so, for example, if the siblings have been, um, if it's been normalised that they share a bed together, have baths together, I'm not talking about when we're very young, I'm talking about as time goes on yeah. and there's a lot of family nudity, that that can be a risk factor. That it, it what the theory is, is that the children are not subconsciously taking in that there is a taboo here. And so when they start to develop sexual feeling, well, you know, that can happen at any age, yeah. but as sexual feelings grow, they may be naturally looking towards their younger sibling um, because they haven't subconsciously taken in these boundaries. Those boundaries haven't been there from their parents. So that's one, one set of factors. Uh, but also you have other things like... Um, you know, sibling sexual abuse is much more likely when there's been a lack of parental affection. So, you know, when you've got um, a kind of emotional neglect in the background, um, and so siblings may be kind of turning towards towards one another, or one sibling is looking to kind of meet those that need for attention from the other. Um, sometimes also parental favoritism, um, and that can work in both directions. So. Sometimes it can be that, say, for example, it's an older brother who's abusing. If he is the favourite, then that might, and there might be some kind of patriarchal norms in the mix too. So he knows that he kind of is taking in a sense of entitlement, that he can do whatever he wants with his sister and she's not as important as he is and no one's going to believe her. Um, but also it can work the other way around. Like if the victim is favoured, and the the abusive, the harming child is one is very resentful of that. And that the abuse is then a kind of get, getting some revenge. Um, and although I am talking, although I've generalized here to the most common scenario of a of a 
the harming child being an older brother towards a younger sister, we know that obviously yeah. every combination does happen, including Absolutely. girls being uh, the, the harming child. And it can be brother on brother, sister on sister. So it's not exclusive. No. And and just and just kind of linking to that, so I'm going on here, but um just another really important point is that although in many circumstances it is clear that we have a harming child and a harmed child, there are some situations, and it's all just so complex. It's in a way, it's one of the most complex forms of abuse, particularly for professionals to disentangle what's going on because there are some situations where you cannot easily say that it is abuse one child abusing another um but there may be something happening between two siblings that is actually quite mutual even if it's not normative um so for example in my research there were various case studies um one involving these twin brothers who had a sexual relationship for five years when they were children. And it didn't seem to involve any particular power dynamic. It was mutual. Um, it's quite compulsive. But I think it's really important that we name this because survivors of that, or, or you know, people who've experienced that, are often still finding huge impact, huge negative impact, even if they can't say somebody was abused, you know, somebody was doing this to me. Um, there's still something about that happening that's been quite traumatic for them. And there's still shame and guilt, isn't there? No matter if there was violence or a power dynamic or, or whatever the situation is. Exactly. And to back that up, Ellie, Chris already knows, I actually have a statement here from somebody who very kindly has written something to, so that we can actually share from the voice of a survivor and we'll also be hearing from someone later as well so I'm just going to share this now this is a, a young woman who is now herself a parent and um, I'm just going to share it and then we can speak about it afterwards I'd like to share something deeply personal and challenging for me I went through years of sibling abuse with my brother which began when I was around five or six years old and continued until my early teens. It was incredibly difficult for me to speak up about this, especially considering the manipulation and aggression I faced from my sibling. When I finally mustered the courage to tell my mum about it six years ago, her response shocked me. She asked if he was simply experimenting, which was very disheartening. Recently, I confided in my dad and he asked the same question. My brother, just a year older than me, created a massive taboo around this issue. There's a stark contrast in how society perceives abuse by an adult versus abuse within sibling relationships. While the trauma I faced was significant, it's often not acknowledged or understood as much as when it's from a sibling. This lack of recognition made me feel even more isolated. Mm. Over time, I fell into a seven-year cycle of self-sabotage. As I grew older, I became more aware and angrier at being continuously controlled and belittled by my sibling, even in front of our family and friends. Mm. I found solace in using drugs as a coping mechanism, but I was too afraid to confide in people, fearing they'd only see me through the lens my brother had crafted. 
It took me a while to understand that what I went through was inherently wrong. Speaking out about this is a way for me to address the injustice and bring attention to an issue that often goes unnoticed. The struggle to find my voice amid the trauma was immense, but I'm hoping my story can resonate with other survivors and provide them with some comfort. Very powerful and, you know, just huge gratitude for her to her for sharing that with us. Absolutely. Your listeners, Absolutely. you know, and her hope at the end there will, of course, be realised that there'll be many people listening to this who have been feeling exactly the same way. You know, everything that she shared is something that we know many survivors of sibling abuse face. Um, and exactly that point that it is something that society isn't recognising, isn't understanding and that's contributing to the alienation and isolation that survivors are feeling, you know, and it can it can be just as harmful as abuse from an adult. Um, there's no reason why it'd be any less harmful. And yet that that harm is not being acknowledged. Absolutely. Absolutely. So thank you to the, the very brave person who brought that in. What highlighted for me was some of the information that was in your report as well. And, you know, it's the age of how young. How young, how long it went on for. Yeah. Um, the, the manipulation and coercion that she was subjected to and that continued into adulthood. Um, and also another major theme there, which we come across a lot, sadly, is these minimising reactions from other family members. Um, you know, it's really sad, but the truth is, is that the majority of children who disclose sexual abuse do not receive an adequately supportive response from their parents. And that is even more likely, sadly, in these situations where the um, the harming person is, an, is, is the sibling. Um, yes. And it's often written off as, as experimentation um, rather than the abuse that it actually constitutes. Yeah. And anyone listening, please look after yourself because this is a conversation that really needs to be had. However, we also understand the impact. This is something that we've all, you know, even presenting this, we all have to look after ourselves around this. We've now got Kath in the waiting room, who's about to join us. So Chris, as I let her in, yeah, okay, I sent her a little message to say that we'll get a letter in just to give her a bit of warning. So, so she should be coming in any minute. Here's Kath. Hi, Kath. Hello, Kath. Can you hear us? You're on mute, Kath. Everything's turned off at the moment, so let's let's just see what's happening. So while Kath's finding herself, um, I just wanted to go back on one thing, Ellie. And when I said, how are children learning about this? We obviously talked about porn. We talked about... Um, models as in people they may look up to and we're talking about as well that um maybe that child who is the harmer has actually experienced abuse themselves potentially and if there's generational abuse there's almost a culture within the family that that generational abuse does pass on in certain situations we know not every single household because it just doesn't but it does in some so 
I just wanted to bring that to the fore as well. Oh, thank you for naming that, Chris. It's, su it's such an important point and it must always be considered and, and, and explored in these situations. You know, has has the harming child, what, what have their experiences been? And, and in any kind of response to sibling sexual abuse, we need to be looking at the safety of everybody involved. And we've also got situations, you know, this is why it's so complex. We've also got situations where one sibling has done something sexual to another sibling but that is being directed by an adult and uh, now that um, might be being directed yeah. by an adult within the family yeah. it might be being directed by an adult online um, absolutely and so then often the child that is doing it then is left with all of the, like the the self-blame that they have perpetrated but actually I, I actually wouldn't see in those situations where it is being directed and coerced by an adult I would see no no the offender there is the adult and it needs to be looked at that and often the child that's then being directed coerced into or blackmailed or whatever they are suffering a, that is abuse to them too they're a and victim that, aren't they they are and that is moral injury you know uh, the, the abuse of moral injury oh okay can i yeah. can i just interject to welcome kath kath you don't know me i'm beverly hello Hiya. ellie's here and i know you know the wonderful chris hi yes, kath Hi. <laughs> so thank you for joining us today on today's podcast, which is the subject of sibling sexual abuse. Now, you did a documentary and I'm not going to give anything away. I'm going to let you speak in a mo. Um, but you went under uh, you went through a process called restorative justice. And we've never spoken about that at all on any of our podcasts that we've done to date. So it's entirely up to you what you share. And we are just really grateful that you're here. So thank you very much. Um, so the platform's all yours to share what you want. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, so I guess for me, sort of my journey on sort of disclosure and stuff like that um, came much later on in life. So um, the family stayed together as a unit, I suppose, until until in my thirties. And then it just came to a point sort of where I couldn't, I couldn't not, it felt like I was living a lie. Do you know what I mean? I felt like um, it, I, I just didn't know whose life it was anymore. I was like, who whose life is this? You know, I like all these, I, I had a, you know, a good job, a, a husband, a child, a house, all the things that like you want to tick off as you, as you get older, all those things. I'd sort of ticked them all off, but there was this, just this one secret that like, that no and nobody knew I'd not told a single soul until until the day I disclosed that was the first time I'd talked about it um um and I, I guess sort of because my career was in um youth justice and criminal justice uh, for young people um mm. I'd worked with I'd worked with a lot of sex offenders I'd worked with a lot of um young people that had committed um sexual offenses um so I'd sort of I guess, I guess in a way I was sort of looking looking for answers outside of me like externally to me instead of looking at my life and what had happened to me and um those kind of things and I, I guess I sort of came to a head where it was like but the, but the answers aren't in anybody else the answers aren't I've got to look at I can't just keep hiding it and pushing it down and and pushing it down um so it just sort of came to a, to a point where I was at a point in my life where I, I didn't want to be here anymore I, you know I sort of thought if I don't tell my family my parents if I don't tell them what their son is and who he is to me because obviously everybody's everybody's offender is 
loved by people and you know that's I weren't trying to take any of that away and I think uh, in my situation he, he was the older child so he was sort of the apple of my parents eye and he was sort of the golden boy um and then I have another brother and then myself so I was the youngest um and I was sort of seven when the abuse started and he would have been at like 11 11 12 that kind of age mm. um and I think sort of to carry it's a heavy it's a heavy heavy burden to carry when and you know it was prolonged abuse it, it went on for sort of three years you know it went on until until I was about to start high school so it was prolonged and it was it it was just just not nice to grow up in a, in a world so like in in my world was as a little girl growing up mm. everybody told me how lovely my brother was and oh he'd never hurt anybody and he's oh he's such such a gentle giant that was his sort of nickname and I just think nah that that's not true like yeah and so I had this all this conflicting stuff because I had this like wonderful brother through the day that everyone was telling me was amazing and kind and caring and generous and all these things and then he was coming into my bedroom and raping me on a night and I was like what the heck is going on this isn't a nice person um so it's sort of it's like I say I got to sort of like in my 30s and I thought I need to I don't I don't want to die I don't I want to live do you know I don't, I, why should why should he win in that sense I guess is what I thought and um that that was sort of when I just got got the courage and thought I need to I need to get help was sort of the first thing that I thought of and obviously took sort of made some self-referrals and made sure everything was in place so that so that I could disclose everything was safe so my little boy was going to be looked after and everything everything was all right um and yeah so I, I knew about restorative justice purely because of the work that I already did um working in secure children's homes working for the youth offending team you know those the, you know work for the youth that kind of stuff like really geared me up to sort of know what was available um and I didn't plan on making a documentary and showing the world sort of like that wasn't yeah. ever part of it. That just sort of snowballed. That was just something that I'd sort of said, I want this to be on record um, because obviously the CPS, the police, the sergeant, it didn't even get to CPS. The sergeant said, even though he went to the police station and said, yeah, it's true, I raped her. The CPS, it, it, wouldn't have got, it wouldn't have stood in court because he was under 14, so he was protected uh... by the in Capac's law so and there was wow. no way there was nowhere to prove that because uh, he was 30 35 or 36 I don't know how old he was I can't really remember but he was yeah he would have been about 36 I think at the time of disclosure so there was no way to prove what he was thinking and whether he knew it was right or wrong or whatever you know nonsense that the police want to sort of say so he was protected by the Dolly and Capac's law because it happened um pre-1997 so um that yeah so that so you know I knew I didn't have anything else I knew I didn't have anything that would hold him accountable even <laughs> though he'd said oh, yeah yeah I did that everything that Cap said is true I knew that I wanted I for me what it was for me was I wanted my mum to hear it from him I wanted her to hear that he wasn't the boy she thought he was um and and that's what I got essentially but it didn't fix anything. It didn't. It didn't heal yeah. anything. It didn't do anything that I thought. Oh, I'm going to feel better after this. Now that that didn't happen. <laughs> Did um, you feel validated though in getting your mum to actually hear what he'd actually done to you? Did you feel any validation or get any acknowledgement or what did you feel? 
So I think in the beginning, I knew, I knew, and the reason I didn't disclose was because I knew how much it had hurt my mum. I, knew, mm. I just knew absolutely how much it would break her heart. You know, my mum my was a child protection social worker. You know, the, oh, wow. this, stuff, this stuff, she was absolutely devastated, absolutely heartbroken, still is. Do you know what I mean? Mm. How do you fix something like that? You know, and and I think I felt, because I, I just knew, I just knew the devastation that it was going to cause. And I just knew that. Like how, how I describe it is that I Robert put me on a pressure plate at seven years old and at 32 I stepped off it and I blew my family up. I blew, right. I blew it up. That's how I describe it. And yeah. But I think I'd, because of the work I'd done, you know, and, and sort of the career path I'd chosen, um, I, I was prepared for that. I think I wouldn't have been prepared seven eight nine ten eleven twelve whatever you know when people say oh why didn't you say something sooner yeah. because I didn't have I wasn't mature enough I didn't I didn't even know until I went to high school how wrong it was mm. you don't have the language do you yeah. absolutely don't have the language and and I think it, that for me that's such a victim blamey sort of finger pointing where you should have told someone sooner you know but there's no there's no right or wrong in disclosure um, no and and I think that's like a really important message when when you want people to come forward. But I also think it's like I was I was I was devastated in 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 uh in response to it's like the police's response. I was gutted about that because I just think here we are as a society twenty twenty four now, but as a society telling people come forward, tell people, talk about it, you'll feel better. Yeah, it's true, you do feel better, but the people that are doing it nothing happens they're, they're mm. not held accountable there's no responsibility there's no punishment you know like less than three percent of people that go to court for charges of sexual assault sexual abuse rape all those things less than three percent get a conviction yeah so you know that's got to change there's got to be something where you know like for me i just think god if someone comes forward and says yeah i did that how how are they protected how how is that a thing absolutely yeah. And and I'm also just interested in in the the process that you went through with the restorative justice and yeah. what did that involve? Because you know I was looking into it when I was looking into the different ways in which we can respond to to sibling sexual abuse, um, and it seemed like it was done very differently in different places around the world, and even in in different, for example, states within Australia, it seems to be done very differently. Um, and sometimes it seemed to involve more consequences or responsibility than in other situations and I just wondered yeah what your process involved and what you found helpful and if you could have changed it to be better to be like you say kind of more justice what would you how yeah. would you change it um I guess the, the restorative justice process is it, it it's really difficult because it is it's victim led in a lot of ways but the offender's still in control so yeah. at any point robert could have said i'm not doing this and i would have got nothing so you know fortunately for me he was cooperative and he was willing to talk about it and he was willing to put himself out there um and obviously we it weren't just a restorative meeting between our family we put it out there nationally you know it went on channel four and um was nominated for a BAFTA and all those things were quite big so for somebody to 
be like, yeah, I raped my sister on TV. Like, yeah. it's, it's, you know, he could have he could have pulled the plug at any point. And I think that's the important thing to remember with restorative justice is you're never in control. It's yeah. like, you, it's just another thing that you get offered as a victim, but you're actually not in any kind of control. So he could have pulled the plug at any time. And that would have obviously left more unanswered questions, um, I suppose. That's interesting. What it's making me think of is... For example, in one state in Australia, I think it's Queensland, they have a system, and it is for young offenders, but I'm, you know, I'm just thinking more widely, where basically there is a bit more control um, that, that the person offending can either go down a restorative justice route or there is criminal justice. So it's less easy for them to step away, put it that way, um, that there's like... There there's is still a, a consequence if they don't do it. Exactly. And I just wonder whether something like that might might have felt better for you to, to to know that there was going to he didn't just have the control to just step away. Something there would be some consequence. Yeah. yeah, I think I think it's really it's 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 just, just such a tricky one in general, because I think like um, the the process itself is quite long. So I think for us, it lasted about. Oh, I think it was about eight months, something like that. So it was quite a long process so and in between all that you're trying to do your healing and you're doing your therapy and you you know you, you're tr really trying to for me I was trying to rebuild my life um so you sort of you're juggling a lot and then it brings new things up and uh, you know I think um the I think the the difficulty in the situation in my situation I, I would advocate for a start of justice I think it's a really really good thing because I think and and not just in personally but professionally as you know i would i would advocate restorative justice because it it it's impactful it it you really get both sides of of whereas you know if you you commit a crime and you go to court and you get punished you don't really think about it again you know i've worked with young people that have done it and done it and done it and done it and you know they're in that sort of conveyable a crime if you like and but at the minute i don't think in england that young people can access restore I don't think that's an option um because they're not sort of mature enough I guess to um to deal with that level because it's, it's quite it's very intrusive isn't it it's very Kath well, um, I didn't realize you could have restorative justice if there wasn't a conviction yeah you can yeah you can ask for yeah. it but and that's the other thing so like because I knew about it I said to the police well what else can you do what you've there's got to be something more and obviously I, I knew about restorative justice just from working um for the Ministry of Justice and, and sort of working within youth offending um and I think but I also think a lot of people see restorative justice as a bit fluffy and a little bit mm -hmm. like people are getting away with it but 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 you're really not because you're really really digging deep into the reasons, you know that. But but why and how did it feel and but not just for the victim but for the offender too because, you know I don't and I don't necessarily think there is any answers but there's some kind of comfort in them acknowledging the hurt that they've caused, and it's quite genuine. I don't think for me it felt genuine. Yeah, yeah. The thing yeah. is, when you're in a restorative justice process. If you've got someone in front of you saying, yeah, I did it, and then they're not getting convicted for it, it must feel really just, uh, you've got yeah. the proof. It's <laughs> yeah, it's really frustrating. It, it it was. And I think that was sort of, um, 
a bit of bit of swill a bit of pill to swallow because you you can't sort of I don't think there's any way to describe what it feels like because but I knew that I had nothing else I, I just knew and I, I knew when when the dolly and capax when when that sort of defense came up I was sort of like yeah and I mean it's good now because obviously new labor abolished it in in 97 it got abolished but um it that means that there's hundreds of thousands of people that are my age potentially that and younger maybe that um that that will protect their offender yeah yeah and and, and, and sadly you know Kath my abuser was my dad and a friend but my dad um that wasn't going further to call I didn't get restorative justice but I did confront him and he yeah. acknowledged it but yeah. he would never have gone for restorative justice because his words were, you should have kept your mouth shut and then some horrible things. However, yeah. for me personally, I don't regret it because this anger from my toes up came out and I was able to release it. And, yeah. and for me, and this is for anyone listening, it's about what's right for them independently, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think... You know, there's a lot of people out there that will say restorative justice isn't good for sexual offending, and it, you know, it's not, it's not built for that, or you know, whatever. However, you know, it's not a good approach or whatever. But I think if there's nothing else, yeah, and that's all you've got, then then yeah. why why not? Why not give it a go? And and you know, you don't know. I Robert could have come and done the meeting when it if because I've not I've not I've not obviously I've not seen him since, but I'd not seen him for like. Uh, I don't even know, like a year or something since, uh, probably a bit more. That and like, and I think there was something in that knowing that that I'd done that and I I had confronted him and I had made him face what he'd done, you know. And don't get me wrong, there were things that he said and things that he, he did, and and I just think like he was still in control. Like I don't think that ever changed, but it was it was a little bit of an ending for me because yeah it it gave me sort of a little bit of closure in terms of right I, i've done that it was like a little bit of something in me that could just let that go like i don't have any i don't have any i don't have any i don't want to know anything from him now. I don't, do you know what i mean yeah. i don't have any questions i don't need anybody now to tell me that it were all in my head because it, he's admitted it and he's said yeah, yeah. and yeah. it's and that that for me is really really important and i think the in terms of what what you were just saying, um, Beverly, I think it's it's important to do it safely, isn't it? And, and restorative justice gives you that safety because absolutely, it, it's not just you confronting for you; it was your dad, um, and that could be a dangerous situation, you know. Um, yeah, it's it, it made it made it made that confrontation quite safe. Yes, Put some structure around it, and yeah. from what yeah. you're saying there, there's something so important about here I do have a voice, I can say, you know, I can accuse you, I can hold you accountable. Yeah. And then like you say, there's something powerful about the process where they are facing what they've done and yeah. feeling, hopefully feeling anguish about that, um, which sometimes the criminal justice process offenders can evade all of that yeah. emotional side of things, can't they? Um, and and I think they once they've been sentenced. You know, they they don't have to think about that poor old lady that they burgled because yeah. it's done and they've gone they've got a community order or they've gone to prison or whatever it is, they don't have to think about it ever again. Whereas 
it's quite personal. Restorative justice is quite personal. Yes. And then having those people witnessing it as well, you know, whether that, like you say, be your mother, um, I suppose some, in some restorative justice, it can be kind of wider people in the community. Yeah. That feels quite an important strand as well, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, it really is. And it's, it's, it's just, it's, I don't, I, there's just, I don't really have words for it because it, it's just, it's, it, like Beverly said, it is each, each, everybody's very different and every restorative justice meeting's very different. And, and I guess it's, it's about remembering that the process is long. So it's because, so how it works is the, the restorative justice people will come and they'll like meet with, so they met with me and then they went and met with Robert. And it's a little bit like a game of tennis for like six months, eight months. You know, so you're just batting and forward, batting and forward and, oh, they don't agree with this and they think this and they've said this. And it's then it's the questions so that then when you go to the meeting, nothing is a surprise because you're talking yeah. about what, what you want to talk about as a victim. So you're very much, but then you don't know what they're going to bring up. Like they could just be like, oh, surprise, here's this. Um, so but can, we, can we ask, Kath, what support did you have in place at that time? Because, you know, as you said, you were trying to heal as well. But you're you're also having to prepare yourself to hear his yeah. side. Yeah. So I was. I guess I've, I've said this a few times now, but I feel quite fortunate because because of sort of the career that I had at that point in time, I had a lot of really really good support. So I had a lot. I've still got a lot of friends that um that are like um harmful sexual behavior nurses and I've got a lot yeah. of friends that still work in criminal justice and I've got a lot of friends and my manager at the time was sort of a H um uh HSB specialist so she was sort of like really clued up on it and um work were really really supportive um so I had sort of really good structures in place and I'd self-referred to um a specialist sexual abuse um counseling in Bradford um so I was getting weekly counseling um support from them and obviously uh people at work work was really supportive I had um occupational therapist I had um my boss obviously was like just amazing um and and, and I had my family like my mum um and and I think for me that was like the that sh having someone believe you is the, the that's the the biggie isn't it? it that was for me was because that could have been the end of all of it I would have lost everybody yeah yeah absolutely but I had I had my family and I had my friends and I had um my work and I had my little boy you know I had yeah. I had a focus I had a purpose I had a reason to get up every day I had a reason to get better um, but then, but I think because of the way my brain works, I was like, right, I'm going to sign up to this counselling, but I'm also going to sign up and do a counselling qualification because I want to know what they're going to do to me so that I'm prepared. So, you know, there you go. I was there doing my level two counselling qualification, getting counselling, working full time, having a little bit. Oh, it was mental. <laughs> you you sound just like me, Kath, and probably lots of other people. We we have to be in control because it's all been stripped. We're telling you how you're going to converse with us and not the other way around. Absolutely. I want to know what tricks you're going to play. But yeah. Can I so, just yeah. clarify for people? You mentioned HSB nurse. So HSB yeah. is harmful sexual behaviour nurse. Yeah. So just like wanted to clarify that. Yeah, that's what that is. So that's sort of um 
people that sort of work with um sex offenders basically so that young people yeah. that those sorts of offenses now um, this question sorry Chris go on because I interjected earlier since the documentary what have you done with your life and you were saying that you're doing more work around the documentary in that vein can you tell us a little bit more about what you're up to yeah so since the documentary sort of so I got my life sort of back on track and sort of, you know, big ideas, big sort of things. I did a lot of work with um, rape crisis over the last few years with the because they've got a big uh, sibling sexual abuse um, project that's running rape crisis. Um, um, I've forgotten. I've forgotten don't now. worry, I've don't forgotten. worry. Rape crisis, everyone knows. Yeah, uh, yeah. So, um, so I've done a lot of sort of. I went and did a couple of videos down in bristol to sort of promote sibling sexual abuse um uh, along with some other survivors of um sibling sexual abuse so we you know sort of having that sort of on the back burner and i've done um just 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 stuff like that really just things to sort of raise awareness because i think that the biggest message for me that i'd want people to hear is that there is life afterwards like like there is you know there's always hope um mm -hmm. yeah there's bad days yeah there's good days but that's you know everybody everybody has that whether they've had trauma or not and I think it's sort of getting a grips to and, and allowing yourself to just have a bad day like I was terrible for not allowing myself to have a bad day and 50,000 distractions and you know playing every sport under the sun and, and keeping busy keeping busy is the key to life um, but I think, but yeah, so we did a lot of work, um, a lot sort of going on behind the scenes because I know that the, there's still a really big team um, as as part of the, um, I can't remember, I can't remember, it's sort of like it's the West, the West, so it's like Bristol and places like that. Um, mm -hmm. They're doing a, there's a lot, there's a lot going on in the, in the background really about sibling sexual abuse and sort of like training people and, and doing specialist courses for social workers and um, teachers and stuff like that um where because obviously sibling sexual abuse is the biggest form of childhood abuse and it's the one that's the most damaging that's the most under the radar that people don't yeah. want to either admit or want to talk about really and I think and because it's so hidden then people don't come forward absolutely so at the start of the program, Dr. Ellie was saying about her research that she's been conducting in this area, sibling sexual abuse, and she basically said everything that you've just said. Yeah. <laughs> Ellie, yeah. is there anything else you want to add to what Kath said or? I mean, I just like you say, Chris, there's so much synergy with what we're sharing. And um, yeah, just really echoing what you're saying there, Kath, that it's it's still so under talked about. And so I think, like you say, a lot of survivors are often thinking, well, am I am I an official survivor of sexual abuse because it was from another child or it was from my sibling? And there's all of those questions, isn't there, for, for many people? Or, you know, am I to blame? We obviously know that survivors of all kinds of sexual abuse are feeling that. Um, and it it can be, like, when, when it's from a sibling, there can be that, particularly you know well we're both children so is it my fault can be a factor can't it and um so no I, I suppose just one question I had was whether like looking back on when it happened and whether there would be anything that you would say like I 
that if the system around you had been different, could that have helped in any way? Like, was there anything that you would have wanted back then that might have helped you while it was going on? Um. Yeah, I think the the what ifs are like the they're like they're there the the bane of your life because you can always look back and think oh well what if you know I, for me I always look back and I think what if I hadn't have begged my mum to let me sleep at my granddad's that night because that's when it started and I just think why did I want to but I was just curious I mean I just wanted to know what was so good about that house now I wish I'd have never wanted to know um but I think in terms of like the support network and, and things like that I think for me it was really difficult because so I went to a little village school so there was 22 kids in the whole school 22 that was it It was six kids in my class that was it It was tiny tiny little school and it closed down it lost it lost the money and obviously they can't there's no justification in 22 kids you know so at the point of when Robert started raping me I changed schools at the same time so any behavior that would have been displayed was missed because it was picked up as, well, she's just moved from a school of 22 kids in the whole school to a class of 34, wow. was 34 kids in my new class. So that move in itself and then the abuse on top would have all been categorized as one thing. Yeah. It was like an assumption made rather yeah. than maybe like that kind of curiosity, like what might, yeah. what could there be anything else going on? Yeah. yeah so I think I think like for me that it's and I just think it's just keep the conversations open like for you know when with kids you know and listen and look for things and look for signs and you know nobody's saying everybody's gonna every every family happens in every family nobody's saying that but unfortunately there's potential in every family isn't there? if there's more than one sibling and all there's cousins or there's you know whatever families or blended families now even you know it's just just be mindful I guess of sharing bedrooms and walking around naked and all those things that like mm. probably back in the 80s and the 90s were all right now we sort of learned actually no that's not all right and I think it's just being mindful of that and but but obviously talking talking to boys and girls and, and education is it you know it's the, you know people talk about we shouldn't kids shouldn't be sexualized and they shouldn't be brought in sort of this adult perspective but you've got to offer some protection aren't you and, and absolutely like i i can remember being in year seven and being in science and learning that what he'd done to me was really really wrong because i had no idea and i had no idea mm. until then yeah no, I'm not a scooby so there I was sat inside and I can remember crying, absolutely crying my eyes out, absolutely sobbing, sobbing, sobbing. And the teachers couldn't, obviously I weren't going to tell anybody. And then I can remember getting close to disclosing to a teacher. And and I never, and then I sort of, you sort of like snap back into real life. And I was like, oh no, I can't tell her. And then I just looked at her and I went, oh, do you know what it is? I just really don't like maths because <laughs> she was my maths teacher. Mm. And they just took it. School just took it. They didn't do anything else. They didn't ask any more questions. They didn't ring home. They didn't do anything really wow you say rather than that kind of ongoing keeping the door open so yeah. children know that they can come back continue the conversation it's going to be a process isn't it you know and it feels like Catherine what you've said there there's so many things that if we could do all of those things would be in a much better place wouldn't we to prevent it and to 
to help children who are who are currently experiencing it yeah and I think it's it's that whole feeling of not being alone you know there's a whole community of people like I just thought it was just me for so long um and I just and obviously w working within the criminal justice sort of sector opened my eyes to the fact that you know it's not just boys doing it to girls it's boys doing it to boys and girls doing it to boys and girls doing it to girls and you know it's it's across the board really there's no sort of strict marker of who can do it but what it does feel like is every story I hear and every survivor that I talk to and everybody that's had some form of childhood abuse it's as if the abuser's got some kind of manual so it's as if these people read these books and they go it's your fault you need to keep it a secret um yeah. nobody will believe you anyway like it's like where how who learns that yeah. like where <laughs> yeah abusers uses those and it's like what the heck what absolutely um, some kind of manual that us normal people don't know about we don't know about it yeah no. mm. so sadly i am the timekeeper and that hour has just flown and i can't thank you enough kath first of all for coming on and also ellie again but what we also like to do is have a last thought so i'll give you time to think about that i'm going to come to you chris and put you on the spot any last thoughts for yourself from what's, what we've heard today? As a survivor and knowing what I know, I still get shocked by listening to experts and other survivors about the different types of abuse, the taboos and the silence around it all and how much more work we've got to do, basically. That's my last thoughts. Absolutely. Ellie, any last thought for yourself? Um, I think picking up the baton there from Chris, yeah, it, it's sobering, I think, and and how much more work we, you know, I am left with, you know, what Kath's just what Kath shared, the the other survivor who you read out her account, you know, sitting with what you've been through and the knowledge that children are going through this now. Um and I'm going to hold a hand of hope as well, that it is really encouraging that we're able to have these conversations today, um, that Kath did have something of a restorative justice process, that that is kind of going on, that there are this, this training for social work, as you mentioned. It, it feels like we're at a moment in time where we can hold some quiet hope that maybe change is afoot. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Now I've given you time to reflect, Kath, and not just land it on you. What would be your final words from today, from from yourself? I think I think my final thoughts are just that. Obviously, we've just had this like crazy like last four years have been crazy, aren't they? Just with COVID and the pandemic, and I just think how much more abuse has happened when all those children. And all those kids had to be at home. So they were yep. home with the that was abusing them. They were at home with them. And there was no outlet. There was no school for seven hours. There was no after-school club. There was no school dinner. Do you know what I mean? And I just think, what what have we got to unpick in the future? What damage that's done psychologically to this generation of children? And that and that, and what are we gonna do about it? Because look, you know, I've I've just found out that assessments for ADHD are going to be taking up to 14 years in the future and I just think wow you know so stuff so, something needs to happen now really in terms of 
looking at historical abuse and what can we do. So that would be sort of my final thought, I guess. Thank you. Well, my final thought, thoughts, um, first of all, Kath, thank you so much for coming on and literally coming in without any introduction at first. So thank you for that. And now we message you privately, but thank you because that takes a huge amount of courage and sharing your, your thoughts. Ellie, thank you for coming back again. Um, Chris, you said it so well, you know, doesn't matter how much of a survivor we are with our own experiences and the work that we all do, you know, nothing is surprising. But I would like to also think, you know, you know, that we can offer support to the whole of the family, including your parents, because there's a scenario and you've got another sibling as well. So we need to be really mindful of that. Anyone listening, if you're looking for support, um, uh, Kath has also mentioned about rape crisis. Kath, is there a particular charity that you would like to direct people towards if they've been, um, if they're a survivor or victim of child sexual abuse or sibling sexual abuse? abuse. Yeah, I mean, the National Helpline, you know, there's, there's people there, obviously, locally, uh, locally for me, um, would be like Sarsville, you know, survival after uh, rape in Leeds. Um, but I guess there's not really one particular one, but um, yeah, just if you need to talk to somebody, talk to somebody, don't hold it in. So yeah, just ring the rape crisis, the, the national number or your local number. Yeah, Ellie? Yeah, that, that sounds, and I'm just adding on to that, maybe NAPAC as well, um, that I know have recently done a bit of work around sibling sexual abuse. So their helpline workers may also be good people to seek support from. Yeah. Thank Before you. we close, Bev, can I just yeah. ask Kath? I've tried to search for your Channel 4 documentary, but I can't find it. Yeah, it's so uh, Channel 4 take them off after so long. Oh. Um and you'd have to you'd have to get it from sort of the film people. The I mean I can I can email them and try and get um, a link for you. Just because be I fantastic. think so many people would really benefit from hearing your story, basically. I, I really do feel that. You must be freezing. What are you doing? <laughs> I'm just starting to them out. <laughs> All right, we'll let you go and we'll let everybody go. And we just want to make sure everybody take care of yourself. Hopefully, you've learned something from today's podcast. And if you do have any questions or want to make any comments, please get in contact with us. Bev, where? Breaking the cycle, two step forward at gmail.com. And there'll be a link underneath either the video if you're watching this or the audio podcast that you're listening to. So we thank you so much and thank you for listening. Bye, everyone.